Alrighty, this is an episode I'm beyond excited to share. Everyone needs to hear it, everyone. So please tell your pals, send them the link, share it on social. Particularly if you know any younger female athletes, please, please share it with them. Hello and welcome. This is Hear Her Sports, the podcast introducing terrific female athletes and women in sports. I am your host and producer, Elizabeth Emery. Today's episode is sponsored by Dr. Kirsten Lauritsen of Northwest Functional Medicine. Dr. K combines healthcare and sports nutrition for the female athlete. Whether you are a professional athlete or an avid fitness enthusiast, it is devastating and exhausting to manage recurring injuries and symptoms from acute or chronic illness. Unfortunately, we are seeing an increasing number of women, including female athletes, that are experiencing performance deficits and daily symptoms from autoimmune disease and GI tract symptoms, like constant bloating, pain and constipation, nutrient deficiencies, and hormone imbalances. These conditions and symptoms often affect training, daily life, and accomplishing big and small goals. Dr. K's mission is to improve sports performance and nutrition without sacrificing an athlete's health. If you have been dealing with daily symptoms and would like to experience better energy, improve gut health, and immune system resiliency while also tackling those sports performance goals, head to nwfunctionalmedicine.com and sign up for a free consultation with Dr. K today. Dr. K's work dovetails really nicely with today's guest, Sam Moore, who also is focused on the female athlete. Sam is doing groundbreaking research and coaching using what she is calling women-specific training design. Right from the get-go, she's asking us to relook at our assumptions about the building blocks of training. Spoiler alert, they've been male-centric up until now. In the show notes, I've included links to her website and other podcasts she's been on so you can do a deep dive into her methods and ideas. Sam and I will be discussing the hormone landscape of female physiology and how training can be improved taking into account those cyclic fluctuations. We also talk about tracking your cycle, birth control, menopause, the emotional impact of finding out that your training could have been a lot better designed, aggression and powerful competition, and strangely, Thanksgiving shows up several times. And now it's time to get to it and introduce Sam. Sam Moore recently joined University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Exercise and Sports Science Graduate School as a research fellow under Dr. Abby Smith-Ryan in the Applied Nutrition and Exercise Physiology Lab while she pursues her doctorate in the Human Movement Sciences curriculum. Prior to Carolina, Sam was with the NC State Wolfpack from 2019 to 2021 as the Director of Sports Science and Assistant Strength and Conditioning Coach. Her responsibilities included designing and implementing training programs for women's soccer and volleyball, along with the application of menstrual cycle-based periodization and female athlete performance strategies. Before NCSU, Sam served as the volleyball sports science intern at the University of Utah, where she implemented strategic periodization schemes for indoor and sand volleyball. As a dual sport athlete in volleyball and track and field, Sam competed for two years at the University of Portland before transferring to Western Oregon University. She collected all GNAC honors in the heptathlon, recorded a top 10 all-time finish in the pentathlon for WOU, and was named to the all-GNAC academic team. Moore graduated with a degree in exercise science and human biology in 2015 from WOU, a master's in exercise science and performance enhancement and injury prevention from California University of Pennsylvania in 2018. Well, Sam, it is so, so great to have you here. You're doing such important work and doing 
you know, just exemplary job of speaking up about it and how training can improve for female athletes. Thank you for being on Hear Her Sports. Thank you so much. I'm really excited. I've listened to your podcast before, so I am going to do my best to not fangirl and just really just stay on task. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks. That's great. Um, You know, I think to start, we need an introduction to the foundation of your work and research and coaching methods. You know, what is menstrual cycle-based periodization and female athlete performance? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The the title of, of my work or focus has changed quite a bit in the past few years. But essentially, I think my colleague and I from the Female Athlete Conference, Marcia Daniel, we really settled on this term of women-specific training design. And the reason that that is, is not every female athlete has a menstrual cycle, although uh, sometimes we wish they did, right? It can be a bit out of our control. But essentially, just, you know, at its core, when we really break it down, it's it's a training environment in all capacities that are aware and attuned to female physiology. Because, you know, as I was going through the strength and conditioning curriculum of, of graduate school, we don't talk about the menstrual cycle in terms of its impact. And so whenever you're looking at research, if you're lucky enough to find strength and conditioning research that has female participants, it just kind of accepts these lackluster results from women. And just we just kind of chalk it up that, well, that's just what happens with women, right? They're just, they're not going to be as strong and they're not going to gain as much muscle or, you know, hit those high of intensities. And, and And if the menstrual cycle is considered, then it's usually just this black box of mystery uh, that we don't really talk about or or attempt to understand in terms of performance. And so when we look at women-specific training design and and menstrual cycle-based periodization, essentially it's just a training environment and plan and, and experience for the female athlete that is based on their physiology. I'm glad you mentioned sort of the lack of education about all of this, because a couple of things struck me as I was prepping to talk to you. You know, one, I was just super surprised that there wasn't a ton of writing about what you're doing. I mean, to me, it seems so revolutionary and so, you know, needed and needed two decades ago. <laughs> and, you know, what I was finding was mostly you talking to podcasts with women hosts. So I thought that was really mm-hmm. interesting. And mm-hmm. it also struck me that, you know, what you've been learning and how you've been coming up with your theories about training is pretty recent. You know, I mean, you give an example that just happened right before the pandemic. So, you know, within the last year or so, two years, whatever. So because what you're doing is so long overdue, can you give us a timeline of how you got to where you are in your thinking? And were there sort of pivotal aha moments for you along the way? Absolutely. Yeah. That's so interesting. I've, I don't know why that's never really crossed my mind that the very large majority of the podcasts that I go on are women hosts. But I think it's really different, you know, when you speak about it to to a male coach and they're like, oh, wow, that's really fascinating. And then you speak about it to a woman coach and 99% of the time, it's just extremely validating, right? So your experience as a female athlete, you aren't allowed to bring this to the table. Society doesn't let you. And so to to be a, a former female athlete and to be looking into this, I just remember every day I had a light bulb moment of like, wow, that's so validating for this specific experience. And it can be kind of an emotional journey when you start to learn about the research and so many pieces become connected for you. But in terms of the timeline, when I decided to go back and get my master's, I was actually a barista at the time. I had worked at University of Portland right out of undergrad, um, and I was offered a paid full-time position there, um, but I was also offered 
a raise or a promotion, I guess, to work at this coffee shop that I was working at. It's called Dutch Bros. It's a West Coast coffee shop. And they offered me a mobster position to work for headquarters and to fly around the West Coast and be a culture coach, essentially. And so I actually didn't take the strength and conditioning full-time position. And I chose to be this mobster position and work for Dutch Bros. So I did that for a couple of years and I absolutely loved it. And I, I grew a ton, but I decided that I really wanted to kind of stretch the scientific part of my brain again. And so to be able to afford to go back to school, even though I got loans for my master's degree, there was still a gap that that I had to pay for it. It was about $700 a month. So I moved back in with my parents. I think I was maybe 24, 25 at the time. Um, and I got my substitute teaching license. And it turns out that they had a health emergency and they hired me as a full-time Spanish teacher, but I don't speak Spanish. So I was in this accelerated <laughs> master's program. I was a, a foreign language department head at this high school in a language that I don't speak. I took sign language in college and it was so difficult. It was super hard, but they also hired me to be the head track and field coach. So I've got all these things going on and I remember I called Cat Wade, who was my mentor at University of Portland. And I said, you know, Cat Wade, I think I'm I'm pretty decent at teaching, which is crazy because I've never done it before, uh, never learned about it. I don't even have a real teaching license, but I don't love it. I don't love it like you're supposed to love it to do this job, especially at this school. It was 50% homeless and 93% below the poverty line. And so I, you know, I want to get back into college sports. I just don't know how or where or what it looks like. And sometimes strength and conditioning would just... I would feel like I would get stuck on a hamster wheel, right? And I would always be solving the same problems. And, you know, in the spirit of full transparency, I have quite an aggressive case of ADHD. So if I feel like I'm always doing the same thing, then I'm probably not going to do it, which isn't always a great trade. But I, I have to feel like I'm always kind of moving on and conquering the next big question. And so she's like, okay, you know, here's a list of people to follow. And, and she would just start, she would start sending me books and podcasts and, and webinars and things like that to kind of basically keep my brain involved in performance because I was just so not interested in being a teacher. She would send me like TED Talks and, and all these different YouTube you know, shows on every day at lunch. I would watch them on my lunch break. And so she sent me one day a podcast with Dr. Stacey Sims and Kelly Starrett of Mobility Wad. And it was the first time that I had ever heard of anything related to female physiology and training. And it just wow, blew really? my world. Yeah, it blew my world wide open. And so I was just I'm speaking at a conference on Friday and I was talking with a coach who's been in the industry for longer than I've been alive. And she was like, I just feel so guilty for not thinking about this. Like, I feel so guilty that none of this has crossed my mind. And I was like, oh, full vulnerability. It hadn't crossed my mind either. Like this isn't, this didn't even come from my own questioning and it absolutely should have because I had huge fluctuations in performance and I had huge interactions with the birth control that I was on in college and it absolutely affected my rehab looking back. You know, I think that's one of my biggest things. Like if I could just communicate that first and foremost is that like there can't be any guilt associated with it because this didn't even come from my own brain. It came from Dr. Stacey Sims and she, it, she's definitely a more endurance focused uh, researcher, but from there, I mean, that was the first time I heard it. And I just, I mean, I went off the rails. Like I would change every, every assignment that I would get in grad school, I would target it towards female athletes. And I would get like, I would get bad grades on the assignments. I would lose points because they're like, this didn't answer the question. And I was like, yeah, I hear you. But it answered my question. So I feel confident in the work I put out. <laughs> 
And, you know, every day at lunch, when I was a teacher, I would look up research papers on Google Scholar, and I would just read and read and read and listen to any podcast I could find. And that's kind of how I put it together. So then fast forward, I got a sports science internship at Utah with Dr. Ernie Reimer. And in our first week, he kind of asked us, he's big on fulfillment, like that's his key to life. He's like, you need to be fulfilled in your job, outside of your job, you're going to be such a better human and employee and scientist if you're fulfilled like that should be your main goal in everything you do and so he, he asked us me and Paul Mentley my co-worker you know what really makes you feel fulfilled like what really lights you on fire and so that was the first time that I had talked about you know this this female athlete physiology and how to structure training and at the time I didn't have like a full framework developed I really only had it in terms of resistance training And so he put me in different conversations and situations to be able to develop that and to find opportunities to start that work at Utah. And so that is, that's the only reason I think I got the job at NC State to be able to to be full-time and to do it here. You mentioned a bunch of stuff I want to talk about. I'm not sure how, because I like, I want to talk about the conference that you were just at. And I'm really curious, you know, what you learned and whatnot. But maybe we need another introduction to what exactly you recommend in terms of changing training for women? Yeah. Just so we have a, a starting point. Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. It's definitely complex. I think the framework that I usually take strength coaches through, um, I've, I've worked with sport coaches and athletic trainers and dietitians as well. But with my experience being mostly in strength and conditioning, that's, you know, the, the crowd that I speak to the most often, I would say. So you have to take into account where you are in the annual plan. So if you're in in-season, if you're in off-season, what are the outcomes that you're working towards in that block of time. You know, so you wanna take your, your KPIs, right? Your key performance indicators. So what capacities are you trying to develop? And then understanding the menstrual cycle and the hormonal landscape of female physiology. And once you can understand kind of those governing hormones and, and what they can allow for and the environment that they create in the body, then you can, you know, almost like a block periodization scheme. So then you can kind of drag and drop the different outcomes that you're looking for and the capacities that you're trying to develop into the phase of the menstrual cycle that's going to be the easiest to maximize them. Right. And I, I you know, for people who aren't familiar with this kind of training and what the different phases of the menstrual cycle due to training, you know, it was really interesting that, you know, you can't do normal periodization that have been designed for men usually, right. which I, I found very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And so tell me about the conference and yeah, I mean, like, what were your takeaways from that? Cause that must've been really great to be there with, I don't know. I mean, that conference sounds awesome. The female athlete conference. Yes. Oh my gosh. It was incredible. It's it's so interesting. So when I first heard about Dr. Stacy Sims, it was um, maybe four four years ago now. And so then I think that was the first time that I had heard about the female athlete conference, and I wanted to go so bad, <laughs> and then I couldn't afford it because I was making these big tuition payments to get my master's degree, and you know I was on a teacher's salary, which granted in Oregon is actually a really great salary. And then you know I was at Utah, and I was an intern, so I was unpaid, and I couldn't afford to go there. But I've always you know followed the female athlete conference, and I followed the big researchers, and so in I think it was November when. Marsa reached out and, you know, asked if I wanted to to join her and put something together, you know, as colleagues. And then it got accepted and I, I cried. I was so <laughs> overwhelmed. It was like this thing that I had looked up to for so long. And I, 
I have a hard time kind of transitioning out of that intern mindset. You know, I still do so much work for free because I, you know, have this existential connection. Like if I don't do it, then no one's going to know how to train female athletes, which isn't the case. But, um, and so to make that kind of transition to, you know, I'm, I'm working for free. These are the women that I look up to. These are the researchers I would love to be like one day to be presenting alongside of them. It was, it, yeah, it was, it was really overwhelming for sure. So did you learn anything? Oh my gosh. Or what did you so. learn? Yeah. <laughs> Tell learned, me one uh, thing that you learned. <laughs> uh, I learned so much. I think, um, one of the, one of the biggest nuggets, and I actually, I touched on it a bit in our Q and a period was Miss Val, the, the UCLA gymnast coach. And she did the Q and a with Dr. Julie McCleary. I think at the, in the morning session of Thursday, I want to say, and she was, she was hilarious. She was such a spitfire. She she was talking about speaking in sport coaches language. And so I think that, that that made a big connection for me because, you know, like the research of it and the nitty gritty and the hormonal capacity and all those things. And there is a school of thought in the industry that we don't know enough to be able to target training, right? We don't know enough to make specific prescriptions. There is a, a school of thought, a body of researchers that that's the way that they think and that's what they feel. And they're validated in that. You know, we don't have as much research in this as we do in, you know, stable hormonal states of of male athletes. But I think, you know, when Miss Val was talking about it and she was talking about putting it in their language, it it kind of just made this clip for me that any amount of of individualization is better than nothing right? So, so it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be this like, like highly attuned and and perfectly calculated training prescription for the exact hormonal state that the athletes in that day, because, you know, it is, it is a fair bit of guesswork at the collegiate level, but any amount of, of individualization for that athlete, any amount of choice that you give that athlete is, is going to be better than nothing. And, and then being able to communicate that with the sport coach, I think I was really lucky that when I came in, the soccer coach, he knew about it because, you know, Chelsea FC is doing it. The women's national team is, is tracking their cycles. And so it, it's definitely a conversation in soccer, but it's not in volleyball. And volleyball can often be a little bit more behind the curve in terms of sports science and applications and technology and things like that. Um, and so, you know, I was lucky again that our volleyball coach had heard of it as well. But I think that's a conversation that I don't always have a lot of advice for because I haven't had to navigate it very often. And then I also get, you know, a question about like sports medicine and how to talk to athletic trainers about it, and how to get them on board because sports medicine and strength and conditioning can very often be at odds. And so that's also something that I don't have a lot of experience with because the two athletic trainers that I work with here are absolutely incredible. They're fully on board. They learned about it. They knew about it. You know, there was no convincing. And so I think hearing it from a sport coach's perspective, especially such a successful one, just gave me a little bit more understanding from the other side, because I don't often engage in conversations that much at the moment with people who aren't already invested in it. At the beginning, it felt like I was always having to validate this work and like, this is why it matters. And this is why we need to do it from like a science perspective. But I think I'm lucky to be at the point where I have enough people approaching me about it that they already know. And so I don't necessarily have to convince anyone of the validity as often. And so getting to hear about that from the sport coach's perspective, it definitely helped, especially moving into the next sector of my career where I won't be in the athletic landscape. I would bet that switching mode 
in training away from the idea that you always go hard. You know, I'm thinking about the soccer player you've talked about frequently, the one who had the ACL surgery and mm -hmm. resulting limb strength difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, the training program that you devised for her, taking into account her birth control, that must have been a leap of faith for her to train that way because she was taking so much rest. So how do you, you oh. know, like, I guess, how do you convince the athlete as well? Yeah, yeah, that was a unique case too, right? Because we had two athletes very similar in their post-ACL timelines. And one of them had, you know, a training program that was working. And then this athlete had to have one that was different. And they weren't necessarily an athlete where that, you know, was super celebrated. Especially as women, you you don't necessarily want to be the one with a different program. After surgery, you put these goals of being able to do what everyone else is doing, right? Like that's the goal. The right. goal is just getting back to what feels like is baseline. So for me to say, you know, okay, we're going to completely change it. We're going to, we're going to flip everything on its head. We're going to cut the number of days that you're coming in, but when you're coming in, they're going to be much, much, much harder. And this is how we're going to structure it. it. It was definitely a leap of faith. And there were some tears and there were a lot of hard conversations that we had to have. But I think for better or for worse at the collegiate level, you have so much control over their schedule that I was like, listen, this is what we're going to do. And our athletic trainer is bought in and you know, this is why, and I will explain it to you and, and teach it to you all day long. But at the end of the day, I need you to take a leap for me. And I had only been there. I mean, she'd only worked with me for like two and a half months. So to come back from quarantine early and for me to say, we're going to completely flip your training on its head. She didn't know me. Arguably, she she didn't have to. She could have said, I'm not doing this or I'm, you know, I'm not going to play soccer here, right? Or, or whatever. But I, I guess there wasn't much of a choice, which I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'll, I'll say this. It didn't take long. So the Biodex is what we tested the limb asymmetry with. And as soon as she got back her first Biodex and she saw huge results, the buy-in was, it was full. I mean, she was completely bought into the program and I think she went home for a week and, and that's the most that she has ever reached out to me about, you know, questions with her week program at home and things like that. And so, you know, as soon as she got those first initial results back, she was completely bought in, but it was, it was absolutely, it was tough. I mean, it was, we had a lot of head to head battles and she's like, I don't want to do this. And I've said, I'm sorry, this is my, my job. I'm the coach here. This is what I've got for you. It's going to pay off. But I, you know, you, this is, this is your job as an athlete. You, you're, this is your program. This is what you have to do to make it back to your game. And she did it good on her. Yeah. She absolutely did it. But yeah, the buy-in was, was tough with that one at first, for sure. I'm surprised that the program worked so quickly, I guess. You, uh, you know, I am too. And I think <laughs> Full disclosure, I absolutely am too. I think part of it is just the situation that she was in when she came back, right? So the only people that were allowed to train on campus were post-surgical cases. Hmm. So there weren't a lot of people in town. There weren't a lot of teammates in town. The only thing to do was was to train. You know, we always talk about how we don't work in a vacuum, but like we we really got to work in a vacuum on that one. And I don't know why it worked so quickly. I just... <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting because earlier you mentioned that this kind of training and the research that you're doing is validating, but I also think that it's infuriating in many ways. It's like, why are we just yes. discovering this now in 2021? Oh my gosh, I could not agree more. It is, it's, it's absolutely infuriating and that's the other side of it. And, um, 
And I think the infuriating part is like these, I, I don't really face it as much anymore, but more so at the beginning, you know, like these male strength coaches would be like, but how? how are we going to do the progressive overload? And I'd be like, yeah, you're just going to do it like this and this, and it's just not going to look like it used to look. And they're like, but that's not a progressive overload. And I'm like, yes, it is. You know, trying to explain these, these strategies, the inherent lens, the foundational understanding is on a hormonal state. It's through this, this stable hormonal state. And so to, to teach strategies that are based off of anything that's not this stable hormonal state of a male athlete is really difficult. And so it requires some prefacing. It requires like, this is going to look different. We have to break down these foundational truths so much that we've accepted just as truth. Like, you know, growing up in strength and conditioning and in your undergrad and your grad, like you, you're taught about progressive overload the hormonal state isn't even mentioned, right? And so it's it's this inherent male lens on sport that we have to deconstruct. And that's originally why I reached out to Marcia in the first place. She had seen some graphic of a presentation that I had given just on staff to my seven staff members of, of all men and, and one other woman. And she, you know, retweeted on Twitter and I saw that she was in coach education and, and female sport science. And I immediately reached out to her and I said, I need help teaching coaches because I get so infuriated. I would get so angry that they couldn't just put aside their, this inherent male lens for like 20 seconds to see through the eyes of a female athlete, to hear this information through the ears of a female athlete for the first time. I would get so mad that I wouldn't even be able to like finish a presentation. Um, (laughs) And so she helped me a lot with that one, but yeah, it's, it can be definitely infuriating. Well, you know what you're talking about in terms of the male lens, I was really struck with that in your, you're talking a lot about the pill. And so I was really struck about how our vision of what the pill is for is so through a male's lens. And, you know, a lot of what you talk about really blows me away, but this is a big one. The pill does not regulate your cycle. It suppresses your natural hormones with synthetic hormones and places a mock cycle on top of it. I mean, Mm -hmm. as I said, it blows me away. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's so wild. It's so wild too. Like, you know, just anecdotally, when I went in to get birth control when I was 18 years old and at college, you know, I remember that there were some like non-negotiables, right? So like I, I couldn't do a daily pill because at that time it was undiagnosed ADHD, but like, I, you know, I can't even remember to take antibiotics when I have like deathly pneumonia. So I'm not going to remember to take a pill, but I remember being like really adamant that it could not affect my training. You know, I was like, I'm about to go in to my, I think it was my sophomore year in college. It cannot affect my training. And, and if it does, I need to be able to get out of it like that. Right. And so it was that, that, that the doctor recommended an IUD. And she said, you know, at the time, this was in what, 2012, I think. And so she's like, we don't usually recommend this for women that haven't had children, but because, you know, it's a local hormonal effect. If you do have negative side effects, you can take it out at any point and and they'll go away, you know, almost immediately. And so that was something that was really important to me. But I remember her saying that, that that wasn't, that wasn't a common ask that women don't usually ask this, that if I have negative side effects, I need them to be gone immediately because this can affect my volleyball season. And so she prescribed to me a birth control that wasn't usually prescribed to women of my age that hadn't had children because that was my big non-negotiable. And so 
you know, like when we're talking about the pill, it's, I, I can't tell you after, you know, after the initial presentations with my teams, how many athletes have come up to me and they're like, Sam, I want to talk about my birth control. And I'm like, okay, let's do it. Let's break it down. Let's talk about, you know, what you're feeling. What, what does the data say that your symptoms are and, and what could be attributed to that? And, you know, what, how your doctors told you to take it and can we take it at a different time? Because there's so much shame associated with birth control. There's so much shame associated with it that as women, we're just expected to take care of it right? Don't talk about it. Just take care of it. It's an issue if you don't, but we can't bring it to the table and say, this is how it's making me feel, right? Are there other options out there? Because then again, it would be broaching this conversation, this topic of birth control that is so shameful. And so, you know, just like normalizing those conversations and normalizing, you know, talking about what other options are available and what else is out there. And so many women that I worked with that I know that I played with, they'll go in, you know, at 15 and, and be on birth control. And then they just kind of accept these side effects and these consequences of it for years. And and the discussion isn't, you know, what's a better option for you? What, what do you need out of your birth control? Can we find, you know, a non-hormonal option that checks these boxes or a lower hormonal option or, you know, what makes you feel the best? It is just, you know, skip your sugar pills or, or, you know, take them every third pack or this is just what happens when you take birth control. So yeah, it's, it can be, again, absolutely infuriating. And I definitely uh, get up on a soapbox a time or two. I know my yep. family's like, it's Thanksgiving dinner. We probably don't need to talk about the pill. I'm like, it's the patriarchy, right? <laughs> um, but, uh, but it's true. We, I mean, we really do. We need to normalize these conversations, not just for, for female athletes, but for you know, women of all ages and all activity types. Well, I'm impressed that you knew to say it can't impact your training because when I went to get the pill because I had PMS symptoms, you know, I didn't know that, that it was possible that it was going to impact my training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, well, I had asked, you know, my teammates and, um, nobody was on an IUD. Everybody on my team that had birth control was on the pill, but it was also a Catholic university, university of Portland's Catholic. So you couldn't get the pill from the health center. You had to go to a Planned Parenthood in like, you know, in downtown Portland. And, you know, shout out to Planned Parenthood doing doing the good work that our university wouldn't for us. But, you know, there's there's so many reasons of why women are on the pill. And I think that's the other thing is that there's so many reasons that it's super important that I make a point to never pointedly ask an athlete, why are you on the pill? Right. Or why are you on birth control? Because it could be for all like, you know, PMS symptoms. Those can be an absolute roller coaster, a roller coaster. And so if, if that's why you're on it and, and you go on, you know, an IUD, a hormonal IUD, they can exacerbate those symptoms, right? So it's important for the athlete to, to understand and be honest with themselves about why they're on it and honest with their healthcare provider about why they're on it. But it's also, it's important for the healthcare provider to understand, you know, there are more implications for these, these women that are high level athletes. And I, I remember, I should correct myself, it's not that I knew that it would affect my training. I was just paralyzed with fear that it would. I was mm. super, I was worried that I would gain weight. Um, I had gone through, you know, a significant weight gain after my first knee surgery and worked really hard to get back to be fit and to be able to play my sophomore season. And I was worried that I would get cramps or 
acne or, or, you know, whatever the symptoms are with the pill. And so I think that was more, it was more so just a fear of these horror stories that I had heard from my teammates about the symptoms that they experienced. And I didn't want that. I'd like to take a break to thank our Patreon patrons for their financial support. If you enjoy finding out about these fantastic athletes and learn something from them each episode or are motivated by their stories for your own training, we'd love to have your support as well. Financially, you can do that by becoming a Patreon patron. That's at patreon.com slash hearhersports. As a supporter, you'll get patron-only bonus content. And if you can't do that right now, tell a friend about the show. We love spreading the word about all the incredible female athletes doing their thing. You can also support the pod by buying books through our bookshop page at hearhersports.com books. They're a terrific organization that supports local bookshops and this very podcast. It turns out Sam has also read Untamed by Glennon Doyle. And she said, I recommend Untamed for every woman ever. Get your copy now at hearhersports.com slash books. Well, for regular folks, could you describe a program, you know, designed around a menstrual cycle? I mean, maybe pick a sport, you know, for maybe a runner going for a half marathon or something. Yeah. So um, it's interesting. We talked about it in our Q&A as well, but in a research study done, I think by... um, Dr. Laura Forrest and, and Natalie Brown, I want to say it was, it was published last year in 2020. Um, it showed it was with professional athletes and NGB athletes, you know, internationally competitive. And it showed that 100% of these female athletes said that they feel their menstrual cycle negatively affects them more in training than in performance, right? And so that's super important because we can't schedule our performance competition schedule around our menstrual cycle for the large majority of us, maybe if you're, you know, an individual athlete. And so when we're looking at that, we should look at the the modifications that need to be made should be made in training environments, not necessarily in performance environments. So when you're looking at, let's say, you know, like a, a track and field athlete, right. Or, or um, like a marathoner. So, you know, to understand how, how to modify things, you have to look at the components of your training program, right? So if you're a marathoner or an endurance runner, you probably got some long runs, you've got some tempo work, which is, you know, higher intensity, probably shorter in duration, shorter in volume, hopefully fingers crossed have strength work. A lot of, of injury prevention is simply just strength, just building strength. So some strengthening work in the weight room. And then you've got some recovery work, right? So uh, whatever that looks like, it could be swimming, it could be biking, you know, just something that allows you to get your blood pumping, but, you know, not at the level where you're adding a whole lot of training load. So if we look at those four components, so long runs, tempo, high intensity work, strength work, and recovery work, when you look at the menstrual cycle and you look at estrogen and progesterone, so those are your two big key players. And there's definitely other significant hormones that, that we could get into, but we won't at the moment. Estrogen is anabolic. So it, it you can build muscle there, you can build strength. It's great for, you know, your time to fatigue. So it, it has really good like fitness properties. So your time to fatigue in like a submaximal test is is extended. So you can go longer before you are fatigued. And then you look at progesterone, which gets a bad rep sometimes, but it, it's super important that we have progesterone, um, specifically for bone health. But a number of other things as well. It's it's catabolic. So that means it's breaking down muscle. So, you know, you talked about earlier why 
it can be more damaging than good to follow a quote unquote traditional periodization scheme. And that's why like if you hit a really high volume and a high intensity training session and you're in your luteal phase, which is that second half and progesterone's really high, um, you're going to be breaking down your muscles, right? So progesterone is catabolic. It breaks down our muscles at default. So, you know, if we're looking at our four capacities of training for this athlete, we would probably want to hit our long runs, a lot of our tempo work and, and most of our strength work in this early phase, this follicular phase, which is when estrogen and testosterone are, are rising. You might feel a little groggy the first one to two days of your period, but you know, it's all right. And so this first half before ovulation is when estrogen is high and progesterone's on the ground. So you really want to take advantage of it. That's when you really want to get those long runs in that very high volume stuff. You can recover better, your strength work, build it there. As you're moving past ovulation, you start to see estrogen fall down and progesterone start to pick up. You can hit some more of that tempo work there. And, you know, based on how you feel, kind of understanding a lot of my athletes really struggle with their sleep and fatigue in that phase. So long runs probably just don't feel as good. You don't feel as as much as you want to do them. So again, it's hitting some tempo work and you can still get some good strength work in at just, you know, a little bit lower of, of a volume depending on that fatigue. And then the last part of the luteal phase is when progesterone's really high estrogen hits a peak again, and then everything just goes through the floor, right? It all plummets to signal the shedding of a winding, which is your period. And that's really when you want to hit some recovery work. You can do some, you know, some functional movement work. That's always when I would say for sport coaches to start teaching some new skills, you can break them down quite a bit into really, really small bite-sized chunks, but recovery in that phase is super important. So, you know, if you're like me and you're not on a in a competitive landscape, um, my biggest suggestion is to do what you feel, right? So when you wake up in that morning, how do you feel? Why do you feel that way? Where are you in your cycle? And then, you know, what do you need to feel great? Because, you know, training as a non-competitive athlete is difficult. And so it should enhance your life, not take away from it. And so being able to kind of assess, like Marcia and I talked about, how do I feel today? Why do I feel that way? And then what do I need to do physically to feel my best. For again, for the regular athlete, you know, it's probably wise to track your period and some other stuff. And I'll have to admit that tracking is personally where I break down. You know, I found it difficult in the past because, you know, there's so much involved, you know, there's your period, but there's also all of the emotional factors and there's the physical factors. So how do you suggest, I mean, for your athletes or maybe for regular athletes, how do you tackle that confusion and take control of it? And, you know, what do you learn to track and, you know, how do you aggregate it and think about the results of what you've found? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a good question because I think a lot of people are in your spot where the tracking is where it breaks down, right? It can feel monotonous. Um, and I've had so many athletes that like later on will be in a, in a meeting with myself and athletic trainer and they'll say, oh, well, I felt this on this day. And I'm like, well, why didn't you put it in your questionnaire? I'm like, oh, I didn't think it had to do with my period. I'm like, okay. So, <laughs> you know, it's appreciate you trying to save me some work. But the point is, is that we don't really fully understand as an individual what goes into and what's an outcome of our menstrual cycle. But I think the way that I've tried to phrase it to my athletes is that these hormones are the building blocks of the foundation of your body. Hormones are the messengers. That's what you're talking. They're the chemical messengers. So if these are the primary and governing messengers of the messages that get sent to your body, then we need to track it all. Everything matters, right? 
And and that is a difficult level of self-awareness because as athletes, we're taught not only we need to like go hard every day, but you need to you need to separate yourself from how you feel right now in this moment for long-term gain, right? So when you're in a really difficult lift or really difficult conditioning, you need to be able to take yourself out of your body and physically do what needs to be done because you know it's going to benefit you later on. And that's exactly the opposite of what I'm proposing. Stay in your body and remember how it feels and write it down, right? And so I think for my athletes, they have a questionnaire that I developed with different symptoms that I found in research, but it's essentially, it's four quadrants, right? So you've got some typical performance measures that a lot of people look at. It's physical and psychological, positive and negative. So I think one of the common mistakes that happens is we only provide our athletes with negative symptoms, right? We want to know when are you tired? When do your legs feel heavy? When do you have gastrointestinal distress? Um, when do you have breast tenderness? And those things are important. We, we want to know those. But we also want to know when you feel really grateful and when you feel really joyful and excited and when you feel like you're jumping out of the gym and when you feel fast as heck. Like We want to know the full gamut of it so that when I take it back to my athletes and I can show them this visualization of their most common symptoms in each phase of the cycle and then their performance metric averages for each of those in the cycle then they can see well man i i feel really strong in this phase you know like a a lot of people from society will think i'm just super weak because i'm on my period right because that's what society tells us that we're weak when we're on our period and so you know if i can show them that you know the most common symptoms in that first half of the follicular phase is feeling really strong then, you know, it completely wipes out that that societal myth that we're weak when we're on our period. So I would just say, you know, the, the four quadrants, the, the physical and psychological and positive and negative will really start to give you a full picture of the entirety of how you feel at different points in your cycle. And then I know for my athletes too, we do just typical performance stuff. So sleep, sleep quality, sleep quantity, and then motivation. So I track their motivation every day on a one to 10. And then I also allow like an other, a text entry portion. And then I just, you know, intermittently would get feedback from them about, you know, are there any things that that you feel that aren't on here? And so I would start to add more options of symptoms that are in their language, right? Like neutral. I had this one goalkeeper and she was like, it's not that I feel calm specifically or good or bad. I just feel very neutral. And I was like, okay, great. Neutral. That's good. And so I, you know, would add them. And and that's something I learned from Kat. She did wellness questionnaires years and years ago is to put it in their language, right? So when you're describing your, the motivation, the, the zero to 10, put it in their language of, you know, what did they say when they come into the weight room, super hyped up, right? Um, we've got one outside hitter for volleyball that always, when she's excited, she's like, turn me up, Sam. That's what she always yells at me. <laughs> and so, you know, when you're, when you're designing these questionnaires, it's really important to put it in their language so that they can identify with it. And how do you take information that you've been gathering from the past months and translate it into what you need to do in future months. And I ask that because, you know, periods aren't really regular. Mm -hmm. So what (laughs) happens last month could be very different from what's going to happen next month. Yeah, I take the last three cycles and I average them together for an average cycle length. And then I make training decisions, like putting them in buckets, also based on symptoms. So, you know, you've got athletes due to their birth control or, or one reason or another that don't have a period. So understanding what's happening there, if you can understand it, 
And then if it's a secondary amenorrhea situation, referring that athlete to the necessary professionals to get some help with that. But yeah, it's it's a combination of of understanding, you know, looking at the last three cycles, if they have them, and then looking at their symptoms and then just talking to them. You know, a lot of strength and conditioning coaches call their warm-up performance prep, right? And they it's all this crazy stuff that they do and it's, you know, very regimented and that's not me. I do the same thing almost every day. You know, once I'm out there if soccer, if they're groaning when we're getting into our first mobility movement, we might do a little bit more mobility that day. If they seem really spry and good to go and they're popping in and out of stuff really quick, then we're probably going to do less mobility and more activation. Um, But for the most part, it's the same every day and that's on purpose. So, you know, I warm up soccer for their practice every day and I'll call things out and I just walk up and down the sideline the entire time and just ask them, how do you feel? What's going on? How was your test? How's your boyfriend? How's your girlfriend? How, how's life? How's your family? Do you miss home? Are you sad? What's going on? And so I think that's an opportunity to, to just get to know them and, and figure out where they're at. And I feel as a coach that that's more valuable to me to have a simple and consistent warm up and be able to talk to my athletes to understand, engage where they're at and what they need that day. Oh, that's really interesting. Well, your focus has been training younger athletes and, you know, collegiate athletes have you looked at all at perimenopause or menopause? Um, I have looked at it a bit, uh, mostly just for my mom, which I don't know if she'll be thrilled that I said that on a podcast, <laughs> but that's okay. We're opening up the conversation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're expanding the the crowd. Just bring it up at Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. She'll be here in a week. I can't wait to show her this. Um, right. <laughs> so at the beginning of quarantine, I actually had a really difficult time. I had just moved to North Carolina. I didn't know anyone here and I was really struggling living on my own. And so I flew home and I spent about six weeks at home before I had to come back and we were back on campus. During that time, my mom, she, she had been struggling with perimenopause for a couple of years at that point. And so we had talked about, I would look up research on, she was on the pill when she was younger. And so some of the, the perimenopause and menopause outcomes for women that were on the pill when they were younger are, are pretty significant. Some of the, the symptoms and the experiences can be much heightened in intensity for those that were on the pill for a long time. The risk of, of clinical depression and anxiety later on in life are really significant for women that were on the pill. And that's, you know, the research that I saw. And so we talked a lot about like what her nutrition should be like and what her exercise should be like. And she is a two-time national champion volleyball player and All-American. So she she trained, you know, at a, at a high level for a very long time. And, you know, she still calls plyometrics jump training and, and I love it. But she's a little bit old school in her thought that understanding that the hormonal landscape in your body has changed so significantly that the training that you used to do that would help you lose that extra 15 pounds from Thanksgiving really quickly is not going to help you, right? It's, it's different. Your body's going to respond differently because the building blocks of your body are different. And so we talked a lot about protein and making sure that she was getting really good quality of protein and a higher quantity of it and more of it just to space out throughout the day. She is a go-getter. So she wakes up at 4.30 in the morning and she just is go, 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 go. She's a high school athletic director and an associate principal. And so she's just a mover and a shaker. And so getting her to slow down a little bit and make sure that she had the protein throughout the day was one of the biggest components. And then also strength training. So 
She loves doing circuits and she loves riding her stationary bike. We both, <laughs> we have a favorite Peloton instructor that we take his classes and then we send them to each other and then we talk about it and we have coffee mugs with him on it. And, um, oh, and so funny. she loves, <laughs> yeah, so she loves cardio. She did marathons when I was growing up, but strength training really heavy is not, is not something that she has ever really done. So that's something that we worked on a lot was just accumulating volume under weight and then building that weight up. And it, it wasn't easy because all the gyms were closed, right? This was April of 2020. We were in the height of the pandemic. And so working through this at home, it was a really, it was a good experience. And I wrote up this little contract on a piece of notebook paper of like, okay, mom, I'm a professional. So you have to listen to what I say. And if you ask me a question, <laughs> you have to listen to my answer. <laughs> so, and it was great. But we, um, yeah, we, we worked a lot through it. And so I think those are two of the big things that I would say is, is nutrition and kind of understanding what's happening in your body and what kind of nutrition is going to be helpful for you. And then also just resistance training. So lifting heavy weight is is so important for women of every single age. And we are of Eastern European descent and, and Central Europe. And so, you know, European white women have the highest risk of osteoporosis. And so she was lucky enough to, to get through her college experience with just one rolled ankle. But still, you know, the bone health part of that and making sure that you are lifting heavy weight and you're doing, you know, high intensity interval training for women in perimenopause and menopause is huge. It's super, super important. Those things were definitely some big shifts in her training, but she's been really, really good. And she's so funny. She'll FaceTime me sometimes throughout the week. She'll be like, oh, you are going to be so proud of me. I just bought a new kettlebell. It's the heaviest <laughs> one yet, you know? And so it was, it was a really good experience, a hands-on experience of what perimenopause is really like. Do you have a sense of, you know, how long cycling of the hormones actually happens? And I ask that in part because I'm convinced I'm still cycling in some way. And I'm curious. <laughs> yeah if you found anything out about that? That's a good question. I don't know. I think, I think a lot of it is, is related to menstrual health when you're younger. So I think part of it depends on if you were on a birth control maybe, um, or, or how healthy, you know, your menstrual cycle was, but to be quite honest, I, I have no idea. I'm sorry. I can't answer that. I can't answer that for you. Full disclosure. I, I'm going to go look it up on Google scholar and see if I can find anything, but we need more. We need more research in every single part of this. I know Dr. Abby Smith-Ryan, actually, they just had a menopause study. They looked at the metabolic effects and, and outcomes of menopause. And then they're looking at some more supplementation uh, studies with menopause. And so menopause research is happening. It's absolutely happening. And it needs to be. It, it needs to be because now, you know, Title IX came out when my mom was in middle school and now she's in her 50s. So we've got this, this huge community of, of athletes in perimenopause and menopause that we haven't had before, right? Because, you know, my grandma didn't really play sports. And even if they did, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a serious collegiate level athletics. And so for the first time, because of when Title IX came out, this population of women and, and former high level female athletes is getting to menopause and they're asking these questions. And it's important. It's important to ask those questions and to do it out loud so that other women know, oh, yeah, I'm struggling with that too, you know? And so I think this is the onset of these really high level female athletes that are experiencing menopause and perimenopause for the first time out loud and, and together. And I think also, and I'm going to be quoting you in a way, we're getting women in positions where they can ask the questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, yeah, that was something that we talked about too. And it was, it's really impactful 
women asking the questions, but then also women in spaces to be able to fund the projects to answer those questions. Right. You know, we right. just, we need more women in, in every single side of it. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a question that I've been asking a lot of guests lately, and that's about aggression in women and what it looks like, and also sort of what the perception of what it looks like and how those differ. And I'm asking you because in one of the podcasts I listened, you talked about that women are supposed to be sweet and kind and small, and yet their sport asks them to be totally different. So there's this, you know, mental difficulty that happens. Yeah. Yeah. You know, what's really fascinating is (laughs) I just interviewed my dad last week, uh, maybe the week before on, um, so I was in a, a different conference this this last Friday, and I was having a really hard time. It was my first presentation by myself that was going to be an hour long. And so I was like, man, I really want to develop this part of why it matters, right? And so I interviewed my dad, and I was asking him, because I grew up in a small town, um, and it's a, it's a pretty conservative small town, and um, my family was you know, outside of my mom and dad, we're also pretty conservative. And, you know, I think I'm I'm the first person to graduate from college on my dad's side. And so, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of a different experience going home than it is in, in my life at work every day. And so I was asking him about when I was growing up and, and what that was like for him to have a daughter that, you know, was admittedly in the, the quote of others a lot. You know, there was one experience where my principal pulled in my mom because she was my volleyball coach and asked her if she could just have me tone it down a bit on the court. You wow. know, he said, she just, she's, she's so much and, you know, just, just the celebrations, maybe just tone it down a little bit or, you know, just the volume. She's, you know, just, uh, just a little bit, just, you know, soften the corners. And, and my mom, right. Who, who has also endured some experiences as a head coach that men would never, she said, no, you know, I refuse. I refuse to ask my daughter to be smaller because she makes you a grown man in this small town uncomfortable. We're not raising her to be Newport, Oregon good. We're not raising her just to be good for, for here in this small community. And so, you know, I won't do that. But, you know, my older brother was best quarterback that our high school's ever seen, but his personality was much different. I mean, he was very even keel. He was very calm on the field. He was just always the same. He was a real thermostat leader. Um, and that wasn't me. I had far more masculine traits when I competed than he did. And, and in life, I had far more, far more masculine traits. It was very outgoing, very gregarious, very loud and big and big personality. And, and my town didn't receive that well, to be quite honest. I mean, I, I know that my town loves me and they support me, but I mean, it's definitely better from, from a little bit of distance. <laughs> You know, we had we had this male athlete that was a year behind me and he got division one offers and I got division one offers. And when people spoke about him, it was he really he's putting our town on the map. You know, he's putting Newport, Oregon on the map and he he moved there in in middle school. And that's fine. That's okay. But when I played, people said, you know, she's cocky. She's arrogant. She's too much. She stands out too much. She's you know, she wants the attention, you know, and so the way that people spoke about my personality on the court was was much different. And I was, you know, I definitely felt the effects of that. I was, you know, like cyber bullied online. And when we would go to play other schools, they would, you know, make chants about me and question my gender and question my biological sex and, um, and things like that, because, you know, they, they hadn't seen a volleyball player that 
was six feet tall that could jump like I could and, and play like I could. But I had been playing club with these, you know, six, eight girls my whole career. I remember one time we were going to get on the bus and a, a principal and the athletic director from the high school came out and they said, Sam, we're so sorry. We're so sorry about what our students said about you tonight. And, you know, we would just, we'd like to give you a formal apology. And, and we've asked, you know, a specific student to, you know, write a letter of apology. And I think it was my senior year. And I said, you know, it's okay. I'm not worried about it. And, and they were all taken aback. And I said, you know, what's a 17 year old high school boy going to do when he sees the best volleyball player that he'll ever see? I'm the best player that he'll ever see play the game. And how does that feel for him, for me to be so much more athletic than him? And they were like, uh, okay. And I just got on the bus and my mom was like, well, you know, that's it. You know, we raised her to be confident. And so, um, yeah, like it, it definitely wasn't always well received, but I didn't know how to play my game any way else. You know, that was just, that's how I played and I loved it. And, and I felt at the time, like every part of me was made and put on earth to play volleyball. And so I wasn't going to water it down. But I definitely, I mean, I received quite a bit of, of negative attention for it. But, you know, my parents always said that if you're good enough, then, then you're good enough and your stats will speak for themselves. And if you're gracious and kind and you treat people well, then like people are going to say whatever they want about you. But you've done your job as a human and as an athlete. And so you kind of just have to let people talk. But how did you realize that the world was made wrong versus, you know, something was wrong with you. I mean, you've taught, and I asked that question in part because you've talked about how women and girls play sports in sort of a man's and boy's environment. Yeah, um, it's a good question. I asked my dad that as well. My dad was, he was really intentional to not raise us in a, in a very, in like traditional gender roles and in a gendered household. So, you know, like everybody did the dishes and everybody did the yard work and everybody changed their oil and changed the tires. And, and so I just, I grew up with a lot of masculine interests and my parents never, they never metered that. They never had made me water it down or try other things. And so, you know, when I was in fourth grade and I wanted to play tackle football, I did. And I, you know, went to tryouts and I made the, the top team and I got to play with my brother. And so then, you know, after football every day, we would come home and we would watch film and I had to watch just as much film as he did. And so I think part of it is that the standards and the expectations in my household as being a member of my family with my mom and dad were so high that I didn't really have time to think about how does this affect the people around me? How does this affect the boys around me? you know, the expectations for my teams that I played on were significantly lower than what my family, what my parents expected of me. And so I didn't, I, I just didn't really have time to to realize that, that it was an issue until way later on. And I think, I mean, I've always had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. I was in a, a speech competition in fourth grade and I spoke about girls in sports and why it's so cool that girls play sports and why having a mom that was this national champion was so important to me. And, and my dad was like always very clear. Like my dad was also an All-American, but he will tell you that, you know, Shelly was a better athlete and Shelly was more successful and she worked harder and she earned everything that she got. And so I think my dad was so afraid that, that we were going to be lazy and not work hard that he, he like went kind of over the top with the expectations of our household. But yeah, it was it was just that the expectations of my parents, of my mom and dad were so high for us that what other people thought, I guess, never really made a difference. Because, you know, if if 
if people said things like, oh, you know, your parents shouldn't expect that of you, you're only 12 or something like that. It was like, okay, well, the reality is, is that my parents do expect this out of me and they do expect me to be the hardest worker. And so when that's your mentality of you're just trying to satisfy the expectations within your own nuclear household, the thoughts and opinions from the outside don't really have any bearing or or consequence there. So what's next for you? (laughs) What are your long-term aims? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Yeah, so I I'm starting at UNC Chapel Hill this summer, which will be I mean an incredible experience, and I I didn't plan for it whatsoever. Dr. Smith Ryan had reached out to me to kind of work together on a research project, and we ended up getting to the point where I told her I had withdrawn from my previous PhD program, and so it was quite a long process. But I'm so excited to get into that environment and be able to publish some just high level research that's or just be a part of it that's happening in that lab. And people have asked me if I, you know, want to get back into athletics after I'm done with my program or if I want to stay in the academic route. Um, and I don't know. I know that I have a an LLC. I've done some consulting. Um, and I think that could be really, really interesting. You know, the prospect of, of coming into an athletic department or, or a professional organization and kind of, you know, staying in it for a few months and, and and helping build these frameworks and these processes and then, you know, kind of moving on to the next one that, that seems exciting, but you know, so does coach education and and creating curriculum for sport coaches and strength coaches. So I don't know, we'll, we'll have to see how, how the next four years go at Carolina. And then I might have a better answer for you then. (laughs) Do you think that there's hope to change what we talked about early in the conversation about sort of these underlying beliefs of you know, the lens that we're looking at stuff through? Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, I think it's all about exposure, right? So, uh, you know, like women's sports, the reason that people think that the WNBA is secondary to the NBA is because they never see it, right? And so I think the earlier and the more that we can expose sport coaches and strength coaches and, and anyone that works in the performance landscape to to the experience of the female athlete and and the lens and, and view that through their own experiences is really important. I think the more that we expose them to this type of training um, and, the, and the fact that it's possible, right? So I think it's really important that I just had a couple years on the ground in the trenches of being a collegiate coach. It, it matters because, you know, one of the biggest pushbacks I used to get as an intern at Utah was, well, this isn't feasible. You can't do this in the collegiate landscape. And so now I can you know, we've done it. And these are the different ways that it was successful. And, and then hopefully the next generation of coaches can can take it another step further and, and figure out different strategies of ways of differentiation. But I think the exposure to these realities, the exposure to this physiology and, and these questions and, and these topics is really important. And the sooner that we can get these in front of the next generation of coaches, is it really matters. It makes a big difference. You mentioned in another podcast about letters that you get from females who, you know, reflect what I said about being infuriated. And, you know, I just wanted to hear what kind of feedback you're getting from people and also this sense of what I thought of was regret from a lot of female athletes who are hearing about this new kind of training and the new research. And I don't know, I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. The first when I gave a guest lecture in in Marsa's sport performance course, there were some really emotional stories that came out of that. It was at University of Washington, and a number of the women in that course were University of Washington former athletes or you know collegiate athletes from around the area. 
hearing some of these stories about, you know, these athletes that had to do weigh-ins as at 12 and 13 and 14 years old when your body's changing so much. It's just so damaging. And and the relationship that these women have with their bodies, it's it's difficult. It's so difficult and it's so intense and we don't talk about it. And so I think that's part of it is is hearing these women reflect on their experiences as athletes. And I found that the closer that these women are to their athletic experience, the more light bulbs that they get from it, which makes sense, right? It's, it's closer in your rearview mirror. Usually, you know, when, when you've got those really impactful experiences as a female athlete that you're going back and you're saying, wow, that's, that's like really messed up that that happened. And, you know, that wasn't my fault. And, and it wasn't my fault that my body was growing like that and that my hips were widening and it's validating, but it also can really be heartbreaking because then you look at these relationships that you've had with your body over the last, you know, 10, 12, 15 years of being an athlete. And you're thinking, wow, my experience could have been so much better if someone would have just told me that this isn't your fault, that it has nothing to do with your work ethic, that your hips are going to widen or this capacity, this athletic capacity is physiologically just not as in your reach right now. And that's okay. And, or just, you know, made you feel successful and welcome. You know, how many girls would stay in sport if we normalize these conversations about puberty and we just made them feel welcome in sport? that that can be really heartbreaking, but those coaches are often the ones that take it forward the most and and really promote so much activism within the sport. Even though it is heartbreaking that that was their experience, you know, taking it forward and making sure that that you don't put that on the next generation of female athletes is really important. With older women, it's interesting. I've, I've gotten, you know, feedback of all kinds. I've gotten how we spoke earlier about that one strength coach that just felt so guilty for not thinking of it herself. And that's so far from from what I think should be the experience or what I would want for people. I hope that that you know she can get to the point where it's not her fault for not thinking of these things, right? And then from there, just continuing to push the exposure and the conversations about it. But I do get a number, a handful of women that you know are still of the thought of, well, I I did it and I made it through, and I was tough. And, you know, I trained when I was on my period and I was fine and I got through it. So like they need to as well. When in reality, you know, I read this quote by Glennon Doyle. It's, it's from her latest book, Untamed, that came out last year. And it talks about how when the creators of society build this thing to leave you out, right, whatever it is, you know, if you're not one of the people that was consulted to build reality, if you only consult reality for the possibilities, then we're never going to grow right? We're, we're going to be stagnant. We're never going to have innovation. And so you have to go to these places that no one has been before. And that's the only way that we're going to grow. And we're going to expand the reality of society to include everyone. And I think that that's important. If we always just do what we've always done, then we're never going to include anyone that's, that's not a male athlete, right? We have to, we have to widen our lens and we have to ask questions and we have to be uncomfortable and we have to think and try and experience new ways of training and new ways of interacting with people if we're ever going to grow and improve on the inclusion of sport. And so you get women of women of all different types of responses. But I think that's the biggest one is that is that we have to be uncomfortable. And we ask our athletes to be uncomfortable every day, right? Like that's the whole growth mindset thing. And so as coaches, it's it's important that we still continue to be uncomfortable ourselves. I love that. And you know, the uncomfortableness is sort of a different kind of uncomfortableness. I mean, go going back to that soccer player we talked about early on, you know, taking that leap of faith that this is gonna work. And that mm-hmm. this new way of looking at the world is going to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 
it's really humbling to to kind of admit what you don't know, right? But it's it's the only way that we ever learn by by being in in rooms where everyone knows one thing or two things that you don't know. If you're always the smartest person in the room, then then you're never going to grow. Well, thank you so much. I'm I held you for a long time, but thank you so much. <laughs> it's been really great to have you here. I I I could talk to you for all day or, you know, again next month. <laughs> Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for, I mean, taking the the extra time, but all the time um, out of your schedule. And again, just this is it. This is how we grow the game. And this is how we grow the platform for women by conversations like this. So I really appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for taking the time to listen. Each episode is so meaningful to me. I love having these conversations with incredible female athletes like Sam Moore but you are the most important part of this, hearing, enjoying, and gaining something from these stories and then spreading the word about women in sports. Thank you to Dr. Kirsten Lauritsen of Northwest Functional Medicine for sponsoring today's episode. I recommend her mini course, which you can find at drkirsten.com free. That's D-R-K-I-R-S-T-I-N dot com free. And yes, it is free. That's linked in the show notes along with links for Sam's work. Of course, you don't want to miss any of these episodes with such terrific women, so subscribe for free to hear her sports on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While 44% of athletes are women, only 4% of the media coverage is about women. Hear Her Sports aims to shift the scale while inspiring women to be their best. This is Elizabeth Emery for Hear Her Sports. Until next time, bye-bye. That's perfect, because I was just about to go get my coffee right here. Okay, great. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chequered flag.